Well, this is our fifth and our final membership class. Although I, I think I, I promised at some point in this series that I would I would talk about church discipline as part of this, and so I'm going to do a a teaching on church discipline next week. But it's not going to be officially part of our membership series. But I think it's something to kind of be aware of as as we go into membership. What's what's involved in that? But we've covered a lot of ground so far in this series. First of all, we asked, what is the church? The church is believers united to Christ. And then secondly, we asked, why should you join a local church? And we gave reasons for that. We defined membership as a commitment, a formal commitment to a particular local church. And in that commitment, the believer commits to serving the Lord together with the local church. And the church commits to overseeing the discipleship of that member. And then having shown from scripture that one should join a local church, we went next and we, we thought about why should we join Grace Bible Fellowship? And over two Sundays, we looked at the marks of a true church and we looked at the distinctives or the core convictions or the foundational beliefs of Grace Bible Fellowship. Remember, we said we had a high view of God, a sufficient view of scripture, a proper view of man that he is both created in the image of God, but also fallen by sin. An accurate view of the church, a strong view of church leadership, and a clear view of doctrine. Those are the distinctives of this church, and those served as reasons why I think that that a, a Christian should join Grace Bible Fellowship in particular. And today we come to the final aspect of membership which is baptism. And because all the other sermon titles in this series were framed as questions, I framed this one as a question as well. I called this, What is Baptism and How Does It Relate to Membership? So what is baptism and how does it relate to membership? And so first of all, and, and really the, the structure of the whole message is going to center around that question, what is baptism? What is baptism. And at some point as we go through this, I'll, I'll slip in the relationship to membership. But what is baptism? Number one, I've got six of these here. Number one, baptism is a ceremony. Baptism is a ceremony. First and, and really most simply, baptism is a religious ceremony. And it's a religious ceremony that's commanded by the Lord Jesus. It's a ceremony that's been entrusted to the church, and you know the Great Commission well, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came and said to them, the resurrected Lord Jesus comes and says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples, that's the main verb there, of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the Great Commission has the church making disciples, which involves baptizing them. Each individual believer is also to be baptized. In Acts chapter 2.38, which we read this morning, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the proper response to the preaching of the gospel according to Peter. Repentance 
and baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In fact, according to Robert Stein's study through the book of Luke and Acts, Robert Stein's a commentator, um, he says the book of Acts lists five related elements that really go together to describe the conversion experience. So you go through Acts and you see all of these people being added to the church and being saved. And there's really five things that describe those, those, those responses to the gospel, repentance and faith, confession of sin and confession of Jesus Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit, and fifth, baptism. And throughout the book of Acts, those are used interchangeably to describe conversion or salvation. And so baptism is a religious ceremony that's to be done by the church, and it's to be done to every believer as part of a right response to the gospel. Again, Peter says, repent and be baptized, Acts 2.38. And if you look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, it says, when they believed, and Peter, Philip here is preaching to the Samaritans, and when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so baptism is a ceremony that's to be done in response to the preaching of the gospel. Philip preached the gospel, they believed the gospel, they were baptized. And that ceremony involves immersion in water. And there's two ways to show that baptism involves immersion. Maybe, maybe there's even more ways than that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you two right now. And the, the, the first one is number two in our outline. So baptism, number two, baptism is a root word from the New Testament Greek. Now that's like the worst outline point I've ever had, but the baptism is a, a root word from the New Testament Greek, and there's really two verbs in the New Testament that are related to baptism. The first verb is bapto, and bapto means to dip something in a liquid. And it's translated in the New Testament, it's translated to dip or to dip in. In Revelation 19, Jesus returns after the tribulation and his his robe has been dipped in blood. And the idea there is that his robe had been dyed in blood, D-Y-E-D. It had been colored with blood. And so they would they would dip things in a liquid and so often to dye it. And so that's the idea here of, of Revelation 19. Jesus' robe was dyed in blood. Bapto is also used when the rich man in the parable asks if Lazarus could dip the end of his finger in water, Luke 16, 24. And twice it's used in John 13, 26, where Jesus dips his bread and gives it to Judas. That's the word bapto only four times in the New Testament. Now, the other word that's used, the other verb that's used is baptizo, bapto, baptizo. Baptizo is used 77 times in the New Testament, and it's an intensive form of the verb. And it means very similarly, it means to dip, it means to immerse, it means to submerge something, it means to plunge something, and typically that was done in water. Baptizo was used when somebody was drowning, and so they were, they were baptizo, they were, they were drowned, they were immersed in the water, and of course, they died in that water, or it's used of a ship sinking and and that ship was baptizoed it was it was dipped and it submerged and immersed in the water and it sunk and that word became a, a technical term 
for the ceremony of immersing in water. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says, quote, Despite assertions to the contrary, it seems that baptizo, both in Jewish and Christian contexts, normally meant immerse, and that even when it became a technical term for baptism, the thought of immersion remains, end quote. And so it means to immerse. Now, there's also two nouns that are used to describe baptism from the same root, and the, the first one is baptismos. Baptismos means baptism or washing. In Mark 7, 4, for ceremonial washing of cups and pots, this was used. They were, they were immersed in the water and cleansed. In Colossians 2, 12, we'll look at that verse later, but it talks about believers as being buried with Christ in baptism. And they were also then raised with him as well in that context. And so they were buried in baptism. There's that word. Hebrews 6, 2, and 9, 10 also use baptismos for ceremonial washings, the idea of, of washing or immersing something in water. And then the other noun that's used is baptizma. It's used 19 times in the New Testament, and it's always translated baptism, which in our English Bibles, it's, it's unfortunate that they translated it that way because it really hides the meaning. They, di- they didn't really translate the word. They transliterated the word. They kind of took that word and, and just brought it into the English language. And so it, in the, it, it obscures the meaning of the word because when a New Testament Greek reader would have read those words, they would have understood the idea of immersion whenever they read that word. And so when, when you would read baptism in the Greek, you would see the word immersion all the time, but the English translators didn't do that. And so it's obscured the meaning of the word. And what you could do is you could go through the New Testament and you could replace every time you see the word baptize, you could replace it with the word immerse. Or every time you see the word baptism, you could, tra- you could, you could translate it and bring in the word immersion and then you would have the meaning of those words. And so again, a Greek speaker would have understood immersion whenever he saw baptizo or baptizma. And as we're talking about the meaning of the words, even John Calvin said that, he says, yet the, the, this is a quote from Calvin, he says, yet the word baptize means to immerse. And it is clear that the rite of immersion was observed in the ancient church, end quote. But right before he said that, he said this, I'd say unfortunately, even though he knew that to be the case, he said, but whether the person being baptized should be wholly immersed and whether thrice, three times or once, whether he should only be sprinkled or poured with water, these details are of no importance, end quote. Now I should say before leaving this one that that there were Greek words for sprinkling and pouring if that's what wanted to be communicated. Sprinkling is the word rantizo and it's used in Hebrews 9, 13, 19, 21 and Hebrews 10, 22 and it's always translated in our English Bibles sprinkled or sprinkling. And pouring is ekuno which means to pour out, that word is used 11 times in the New Testament, or another word that means to pour out is ekuo, which is used 16 times in the New Testament, and it means to pour out or to shed blood or to spill. And so there were other words that could have communicated pouring or sprinkling in the New Testament. 
And the meanings of these words teach us that baptism is a ceremony involving immersion. Now, number three in your outline, baptism is a picture. So we're talking about what is baptism. Baptism is a picture. Baptism is a religious ceremony in which a person is immersed in water, and it's meant to be a picture. And throughout the Old Testament, God gave Israel these pictures to teach the next generation his ways. And so there was these pictures that were used as teaching opportunities. So the rainbow symbolized the judgment of the flood and that God would never again destroy the earth in a flood. And whenever we see a rainbow or whenever a little kid saw a rainbow, they would say, Daddy, what's up with that rainbow? And, and they would say, well, remember God's judgment against sin in the, in, the, in the ancient world and his promise in the Noahic covenant. And the Jews were to bind the words of God on their hands and on the doorposts so that they would remember God and, and teach their children. And so there were these pictures that God used to teach in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.20, and and you could go there or I could just read it for you. It it says, when your son, so just after it told them to bind these things on their doorposts and whatever, Deuteronomy 6.20 says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive even as we are this day. Circumcision also functioned like a picture like that. It was a picture that symbolized spiritual truth and it was meant to create an opportunity for teaching the next generation. And it taught them that they needed a cleansing, that they needed the removal of their sin, even at the very level of their nature, that their hearts were corrupt. The temple system was also a picture, a picture of the need for a sacrifice for sin. A picture that sin had to be paid for, that sin was worthy of death, and that the only way to be forgiven of your sins and to enter into God's presence was through the death of an innocent representative. And when we come to the New Testament, all of the pictures from the Old Testament have now been fulfilled in Christ and removed, that is, all of them except for two. See, in the New Testament, the the Lord has given us two pictures that he wants to use to proclaim his salvation. And the first picture that we have is the Lord's Supper. The second one is baptism. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the atonement. And in it, we see Jesus's body broken for us. We see his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And baptism is a picture too. Baptism is a picture of the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, as well as a picture of the believer's death, burial, and resurrection in him. Baptism then is a, a picture of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Or if you prefer, it's a picture of our immersion into Jesus Christ. And to see this, I want you to turn to Romans 
chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so Paul answers here this hypothetical objection to what he said. He, he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer is by no means. And, and the reason that it's by no means is that the Christian is one who died. And we have died to sin. And so you might ask, well, when did we die? Well, we died when we were baptized. Look at verse 3 again. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? All of us were baptized into Christ. Now, this isn't speaking about water baptism. This is speaking about a baptism into Christ, an immersion into Christ. We were immersed into Christ. And in that very moment, when we were joined together with him, we died to sin. See, if you're a Christian, your old self was crucified with Christ and we were united to him. We were immersed into him and we were immersed then into his death. And then in verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In our baptism, in our spiritual baptism, not talking about our water baptism here, but in our spiritual baptism, we were buried just like Christ was buried. And we died even as our Lord died. We died and were buried, were crucified with Christ. And just as Christ rose from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too rose from the dead with him. Christ was raised from the dead and we united to him. We raised from the dead too. And we are raised so that we would walk in newness of life, so that we would walk in a transformed life that glorifies God. We were crucified with Christ, and we are risen with him. We are new creations in Christ. And then if you look at verse 5, it says, For if we have been united with him, which we have, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And so we should by no means continue in sin because we are crucified with Christ and united with him in his resurrection. And now our physical baptism is designed to picture this immersion into Christ. We are immersed under the water, which symbolizes our death and burial as we go underneath the water. And it symbolizes the fact that our old self is crucified with Christ and that our old ways have been put to death and that we are dead to the world and dead to the devil and dead to living a sinful life in the flesh. 
But when we're baptized in our physical act of baptism, we don't stay under the water. I don't, I don't keep you under there very long. I, I bring you back up out of the water and we come up out of the water, which is a picture of our resurrection with Jesus Christ and the newness of life that we enjoy through him. And so we come up out of the tomb and we're alive with Jesus Christ. And there's also a second picture in here of, of the forgiveness and the washing that our sins are washed away through this union with Jesus Christ. And so baptism is this amazing picture of our salvation, of our conversion. And it pictures our union with Jesus Christ. All the benefits of salvation are found in Christ. And this is a picture of that salvation. That's the picture of baptism. It's a picture of this marvelous salvation that God works. And so the Lord's Supper is a picture of the atonement that looks back at our Lord's death. And then it also looks forward to his return when we're going to eat of that supper with him in the kingdom in the eschatological banquet. And baptism is a picture of our union with Christ and of our regeneration. A saved person again is a new creation. And those are the only pictures in the new covenant. Those are the only pictures that the Lord has left us. They must be important pictures to him. You go through the Old Testament, so many pictures. In the New Testament, we have these two ordinances that are given to the church. And so that was number, uh, number three. It's funny, I grabbed an outline this morning, but I don't know what I, what I, what I might have done with it. But that was number three. You got it and you got the outline with you. Number four, let's talk about the history of baptism. Let's kind of look at the history of this thing. We'll follow it through. Baptism really has an interesting history that goes back even to the days before the Lord Jesus came into the world. And in the days after the return of the Jews from the exile, a type of baptism was practiced in Israel when a Gentile wanted to convert to the worship of Yahweh. And so you've got a Gentile, he wants to convert, he wants to worship the one true God, and now they're going to baptize him to kind of bring him into the, the true worship of Yahweh. And in fact, many nations and many religions in those days and in that ancient world practiced a form of baptism. And the Jews kind of seem to have adopted this baptism to bring Gentile converts to Judaism. And there's three parts to the process when somebody wants to convert. First is the males would be circumcised. And that circumcision identified them with Israel, and it was part of their confession, again, that they were sinners by nature. And then secondly, they were immersed in water in a religious ceremony, and that immersion was a picture of the death of that Gentile proselyte. That's what they call a, a Gentile convert, a proselyte. So that it was a picture of their death and and they died then to their old life. They were saying, I'm dead to my old way of life. I'm dead to my Gentile ways. I'm going to come back alive then, and I'm going to be alive to God, and I'm going to serve the one true God. And so they immersed them as a picture of their deadness to their old ways and of their new life, that they were going to be alive and live for the true God. And then thirdly, to bring in a proselyte, they would sacrifice. There was an, a sacrifice that was made, and the blood of that sacrifice was sprinkled on the proselyte, and that symbolized for them the need for daily forgiveness of sins. And so three steps, circumcision of the males, 
And for everyone else, there was immersion and a sacrifice. And that was the confession that a Gentile would make so that he could join himself or herself to the one true God in Israel. Now, the Jews, they didn't do this on themselves because they already saw themselves as belonging to God. And so they didn't immerse themselves. It was only for Gentiles. And so that's the beginning of baptism. And then along comes John the Baptist. There's another Greek word that's kind of from this root. It's baptistes. It's John the baptizer. And it's always translated that way in the New Testament. That's kind of the only other root from baptizo or bapto. Uh, John the, the baptizer, he comes along now and he calls Israel to repent. He's preparing the way for the Lord. And he's saying to them then, you are estranged from God and you're no better than a Gentile. You also, Israel, need to die to your, your life of sin and be made alive to God. And so John's immersion then was a, an outward symbol of the inward reality of the person's repentance. And they would repent, and baptism symbolized then that repentance. And so it was an outward symbol of the inward reality of their repentance. Baptism symbolized this person's death to a life of sin and separation from God and their new life of commitment to holiness and righteousness. And just to kind of see that, let's go over to Matthew chapter 3. We'll see John's baptism here. Matthew 3, uh, verse 1 and 2, it says, in, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here's his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. And then if you go down to verse 5, then Jerusalem and all, excuse me, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Again, they were immersed by him in the river Jordan and they were confessing their sins. And so we had a Gentile proselyte baptism and then John's baptism of repentance. And then third, in a category really all of its own, we have Jesus's baptism. Jesus was baptized by John at the beginning of his public ministry. And you can see that if you just look down a little bit to verse 13, says there, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now, John says, I need to be baptized by you because he had said earlier in verse 11, if you look up to verse 11, I baptize you, I baptize Israel with with water or, or literally in water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus would immerse people or Jesus would plunge people into the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent who unites the believer to Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in every believer. And so John was saying the, the one who's going to come is going to do this kind of baptism, baptism with the Holy Spirit, also baptism with fire. It's an immersion or a plunging of someone into judgment. Verse 12, but the chaff, he says, he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John recognizes his need to be baptized by Jesus 
But Jesus came to be baptized by John. And Jesus said it is fulfilling to, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now when we think about this, Jesus did not need to repent. Jesus had no sin. Jesus didn't need to die to his old life. He was perfect. So what was Jesus doing fulfilling all righteousness? And what he was doing was he was not doing this for himself. He had no need of baptism for himself. There was no law that required baptism in the Old Testament. And so he was fulfilling righteousness for us. He was acting as our representative. And his baptism pointed forward to two things. First, it pointed forward to his own death, burial, and resurrection. In Luke 12.50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And Jesus is talking there about his coming death, and he calls it a baptism. And so he's going to die, and he's going to be buried, and he is going to rise again. He's going to be immersed in death and suffering, but he's going to come out victorious. That's what he's saying there. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And so Jesus' baptism prefigures his own death and his, and his resurrection. But secondly, Jesus' baptism points forward to our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And he identifies with us as our representative. And so he fulfills all righteousness, not for himself, but for us. Jesus is identifying himself with us. And so his baptism points forward to our baptism, and our baptism points backward to his baptism. Now, before we leave Jesus' baptism, look at verse 16. It says there, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, God is well pleased with our representative who fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. And if we are in Him, if we are in Christ, if we are saved, then God is pleased with us because we are clothed with Jesus' righteousness. Now also note as you look at that, that Jesus, after being baptized or after being immersed, he went up from the water. He went, he went into the water and he came out of the water. That's, that's baptism. He went into the water. He was buried. He came out of the water. He was resurrected. A picture of his burial and resurrection. And that leads us to another baptism, a, a fourth baptism, if we can, if we're keeping count here, a fourth baptism that is Christian baptism. And to kind of see this, I just go to John chapter 4 as we think about Christian baptism. After John's baptism, Jesus' disciples began their own baptism ministry. And the Gospels don't really say that much about it, but they, they seem to assume that their audience, their readers, knew about it already. And so in John chapter 4 and verse 1, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And so the disciples of Jesus began baptizing disciples of Jesus. 
They're baptizing new disciples. And, and these disciples weren't likely aware of the full significance of their baptism and what it pictured until after Jesus died and rose again. But at least they knew that they were publicly identifying themselves with Jesus and that they were dying to their old life and committing to following Jesus as a disciple of his. And so they were saying in their baptism that they would now live a new life following Jesus, learning his ways and being a disciple. And after he died and rose again, as we already saw, Jesus gave his disciples, his church, the Great Commission Again, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we are to make disciples and, and pretty much the first act in the process of making disciples is to baptize them in the Trinitarian name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that work together to save that disciple, and so they are immersed in the name of the Trinity. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. When somebody was saved, they believed, they repented, they received the message of the gospel, they received the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized. Now Luke doesn't mention all of these, but let's go to the book of Acts. Luke doesn't mention every single one of these every time, but he really intends for us to recognize that all of those things happened when somebody was converted. Again, they believed, they repented, they received the message of the gospel, they were given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and and most often, probably on that very day, they were also baptized. And so again, when Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost in verse 37, when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked, crooked generation. And then verse 41 says, so those who received his word, they, they received the word, they were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. Now let's just go through the book of Acts a little bit. We're seeing the history of baptism here, and we're, we're talking about Christian baptism now. But as we go through these and look at these, I also want you to kind of keep an eye out and note that the recipients of baptism, again, were always those who responded to the gospel. They repented, they believed, they were saved, they were converted, or in some other description, they responded to the gospel, and then they were baptized. And so go to, chap, uh, go to Acts 8 and verse 12. And when they, the Samaritans in that case, believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now we find out in the context here that the Samaritans believed, but the Holy Spirit didn't come until the apostles came and, and laid their hands on them. And, and I just want to kind of explain that briefly. 
What we see through Acts as the, as the gospel kind of goes out from Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and then out even to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth as we see in Acts 1-8. The apostles, as the people receive the word, the apostles come and they confirm the spread of the gospel and they lay their hands on the new disciples and then they receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit and the apostles then confirm the, the spread of the ministry as it goes out from Jerusalem. And so if you look at verse 16 again, it says they had, or they had been baptized in Jesus' name. And then if you go to Acts 8 and verse 34, and we see the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, and the eunuch is reading from Isaiah, and he says to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, it's important to note, I think, that on a chariot going through the desert, they would have likely had water on board, enough to pour or sprinkle or to anoint somebody on the head, but they didn't baptize until they saw water in verse 36. And also, I think it's important to notice that Philip's gospel presentation also included baptism. So the eunuch himself asks if he could be baptized. In verse uh, 38 of the same chapter there, he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him or he immersed him. And so baptism required them to go down into the water. And notice they were baptized again almost immediately after the person was saved. Then go to Acts 10 and uh, look at verse, starting at verse 44. Peter's preaching here and it says in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit fell on those who heard the word, and that's what convinces Peter that these Gentiles should also be baptized with water. They were baptized by the Spirit, and so now Peter says, can anyone withhold water for immersing these people? And so they they follow through, after the, the reality, they follow through with the symbol. Go to Acts uh, 16, look at verse, starting at verse 13. Acts 16, 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside to the, <clears throat> we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so Lydia was baptized after the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the gospel. And then still in the same area in Philippi, uh, 
Look at verse 30. And then he brought them out. This is the Philippian jailer. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, here's what you got to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So if you and your household believe, you and your household will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them and the same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so the Philippian jailer believed and was baptized And it seems clear that his entire household with him believed and was baptized with him. And the household there, again, would include the family and the slaves, those who belong to that house. And so the history of Christian baptism shows us that baptism is for disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us that baptism is for those who have repented of their sin, for those who have received the word, for those who believe, for those who receive the Holy Spirit, and for those whose heart had been open to respond to the gospel message, it's really for those who are saved. In other words, baptism in the New Testament is for believers. Now there's one other baptism in the New Testament, and we're going to cover this one under the next outline. The final baptism that we see is what we could call spiritual baptism. And we're going to look at spiritual baptism, the fifth kind of baptism, In number five, the significance of baptism. Number five, the significance of baptism. Now, we've already kind of had to touch on this as we've gone, but I want to make it clear. Again, baptism is meant to be a picture of the spiritual reality that it points to. The physical act of baptism is designed to be a public proclamation of a spiritual truth. And that truth, as we said, is that a person being baptized is united to Christ. Again, they are a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is immersed into Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now these verses aren't talking about physical baptism as, as much as they're really talking about the spiritual reality. You are baptized into Christ. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. And Paul, it seems, he he basically assumes in his writings that every Christian is both spiritually and physically baptized. Those two really kind of go together throughout the New Testament epistles. Every believer is united to Christ, and the sign that they are united to Christ, the sign that that is, uh, is given of that is that they have been baptized when they respond to, responded to the gospel. So every believer is united to Christ, and the sign of that was that they responded to the gospel by being baptized. And so let's go over to the book of Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 and verse, verse 11. It says, In him... 
In Christ, you were all, in Him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And so look at what this text is saying. In Christ, the believer has been circumcised. Not physically circumcised, but they've been spiritually circumcised. It's a circumcision made without hands, which puts off the body of the flesh. And the explanation of that in verse 12 is that they were buried with him in baptism. They died with him in baptism. But again, it's not water baptism. Paul's talking about a spiritual baptism that joins us to Christ and that that spiritual union with Christ puts off our old man and raises us to newness of life. And if you look in verse 13, it says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And so spiritual baptism is a spiritual circumcision of the heart which makes a person alive together with Christ. And, and that's the significance of baptism. And the water baptism, again, testifies to the spiritual reality. Without the spiritual reality, baptism is just an empty religious ceremony. But with the spiritual reality, baptism becomes a powerful testimony about what God has done in a person's life. Every true baptism, then, is a public declaration of the salvation that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit accomplished in one's life. And that public declaration is a declaration that the person has died to their old life and has been raised with Christ and that they will follow Him. And that public declaration serves to identify the person with Jesus Christ and His church. And so throughout Acts, you see that a person believes and they are baptized and they are added to the church. Acts chapter 2, that 3,000 repent... 3,000 are baptized, 3,000 are added to the church, and 3,000 are devoted to the apostles' doctrine. There's this continuity there. And that's why we have membership and baptism together. Membership is for every believer who's part of the body of Christ, and so is baptism. Baptism is an initial act of obedience for the believer, and in it he or she is saying that they are joined to Christ and the church, and so it makes sense to put the two together. And so I think by now the, the we're clear on, on what the Scriptures say on baptism. Baptism is a public religious ceremony in which a believer is immersed in water as a sign of their spiritual death to their old life and their resurrection to newness of life and union, union with Christ. Our statement of faith, what we teach, says, quote, Christian baptism by immersion is the solemn and beautiful testimony of a believer showing forth his faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior and his union with him in death to sin and resurrection to a new life. It is also a sign of fellowship and identification with the visible body of Christ. End quote. Now we need to talk briefly and, and finally about the confusion of baptism. The confusion of baptism number six. See, the early church practiced believer's baptism just as I've laid out here. They practiced immersion as well. 
Even Calvin himself said so, that he knew the, the writings of the early church as well as anyone, and he said the early church practiced immersion. But around some time, around the third or fourth centuries, the early church slowly moved away from seeing baptism as a symbol of a spiritual reality, and they started seeing it as an act that gave spiritual benefits. And again, this is sometime around 200 to 400 AD, and, and the early church is kind of spread throughout all the, the known world at that time, and so different places kind of did different things at different times. But at that time, there was kind of a, a, a corrupting, a, a moving away, a slow moving away from seeing baptism again as a symbol of a spiritual reality, and they started looking at baptism as something that actually gave spiritual benefits. And the Roman Catholic Church kind of continued with that, that strain of, of slow moving. And to this day, they teach that baptism, that in baptism, that through baptism, one is regenerated and cleansed from original sin. Baptism saves, the Catholic Church says. Baptism imparts saving grace so that if you do everything that they say you need to do and you are baptized, then you can go to heaven. And so for the Catholic, baptism doesn't picture salvation. It actually produces salvation along with some other things that one must do, that one must add to what Christ has done. And the Catholic Church then teaches a false gospel. And after a while, they moved away from immersion as well and began sprinkling or pouring, which is easier when you're working with babies. And so they wanted to do this on babies. And so they kind of, they began to, instead of immersing them, they began to sprinkle or pour them. And so the Catholics lost the gospel and they lost the truth about baptism. Well, along come the reformers, starting in about 1517, although there were, there were pre-reformers and there were people throughout church history that, that believed along what we've taught. But the reformers came along about 1517 and they rediscovered justification by grace alone through faith alone. They'd rediscovered the true gospel. But they never separated themselves from the error of infant baptism. And this might be partly because the, the magisterial reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, those who were, who were tied to the states they lived in, they were, they were tied to the magistrates in the country that they lived in, and so they're called the, the magisterial reformers. And the countries that, that those got men lived in all counted their citizens through infant baptism. And so if I was baptized in Germany, I became a citizen of Germany. And so everyone in Germany was baptized and became a citizen. And so the reformers discovered the true gospel, but they couldn't separate themselves from this, this, the, from the magistrates and the countries that they lived in. They didn't see the separation of church and state. And so they continued with infant baptism. And later on, as they kind of, kind of formal, formalized their teachings, they found ways to try to defend infant baptism from scripture. Very unconvincing ways, I would say. Luther said, somehow babies, they must be able to believe. That's kind of, that was his defense. Somehow babies are able to believe and, and that's all you need to know. Calvin tied circumcision to baptism so that if every male in Israel was circumcised, so every baby born to believing parents or, or really every baby born in Geneva was to be baptized in the hope that they might believe. 
But what that does is it introduces unbelievers into the church. Baptism in Scripture is for believers only, and so is the church. The church is the body of believers, not the body of believers and unbelievers. And so the church is the body of believers. And baptism does not replace circumcision either. Baptism is for people who have been spiritually circumcised, but it does not replace circumcision in any sense, and and you won't be able to find that in the New Testament. In fact, the closest verse is the one that we looked at in Colossians 2 that talks about that. Well, then along came the Anabaptists, and they broke off from the Reformers and, and also from the Catholic Church around the same time, maybe slightly later. Menno Simons is probably the best-known Anabaptist. And they said that Scripture teaches that baptism is for believers only. And Conrad Grebel, Grebel I'm not sure how to pronounce Grebel, Conrad Grebel was a disciple of Ulrich Zwingli, and he came to believe this way. He came to believe in believer's baptism, and he performed the first adult baptism in Switzerland. They said, baptism as an infant is not good enough. Scripture teaches believer's baptism, and so they decided to baptize, and so Conrad Goebel baptized George Blaurock, and then George Blaurock baptized Felix Manns and about 10 other people of what became known as the Swiss the Swiss brethren. And Menno Simons was a Catholic priest and he later changed his views and, and joined the Swiss brethren and kind of took some of the leadership there. And so Simons was this Catholic priest and, and he joined the Swiss brethren and they were known as the Anabaptists, which is the rebaptizers. They were the rebaptizers and the rebaptizers were persecuted by both the reformers and the Catholics. They were seen as politically and theologically dangerous. They were, they were politically dangerous because they were breaking away from the countries because the, the, the baptism was tied to the countries. And they were theologically dangerous, frankly, because they were a bit theologically dangerous. They were kind of un, untethered. They, they, they kind of untethered themselves. And so they were politically and theologically dangerous and everyone persecuted the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists said, we're not, we're not rebaptizers. We're, we're not, we're not Anabaptists. We're not rebaptizing anyone. And any baptism, in quotes, before one believes is not valid. That's what they taught. Any baptism before one believes is not a valid picture of what baptism is supposed to be. And so the Anabaptists wanted to be faithful to scripture on this issue. And many of them were drowned for their convictions. The ruling in, in Switzerland and area was, he who dips shall be dipped. And so they drowned them in the river. And it's interesting to see then how far the descendants of the Swift brethren and Menno Simons have fallen from their heritage. You see, the Anabaptists, the, the, the Mennonites were the original rebaptizers, and now they persecute or at least they shun anyone who is baptized as a believer. Now, I'm not an expert about the, the local understanding here about the old colony and Sommerfelder Mennonites, nor am I an expert in Reformed theology or Luther's view or Calvin's view. But the old colony and Sommerfelder Mennonites, as, as best as I understand, they don't baptize infants, but they do baptize unbelievers. I'm not even sure if they really believe in the new birth. And they baptize before marriage once a year on the weekend of Pentecost. And, and they actually don't baptize, they pour. 
And they believe that the Holy Spirit comes on the person who is baptized when the water is poured on them. And that's why they put the water by the window before the baptismal service so the Holy Spirit can come through the window and go in the water. And then they're pouring the Holy Spirit on the people on the day of Pentecost, on the the weekend of Pentecost. And then they say that that person's sins are washed away in that baptism. And from then on, that person needs to do good works. And if they do enough good works and they're baptized, they can go to heaven. And they see another baptism as a denial of the Holy Spirit's work in the baptism. And therefore, they call it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They say that such a a one is then unforgivable because the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. So you see the connection there? They're putting the Holy Spirit on the person. If you say that's not good enough, that's not that's not how the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes through believing, through repentance and faith. They say, no, it comes through the baptism. If you deny the baptism, you're 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 blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and that's the unforgivable sin. Now this view, it seems, has also carried over into the other churches in the area where they also baptize people before marriage. And perhaps what they're hoping is that, that the, these people are going to forsake their sin and settle down now that they're getting married. So they, they, they run rampant into sin and now they, they get baptized and hopefully they settle down and hopefully the, the marriage is going to tame their lusts and keep them away from sin. But that's not the way salvation works. Now, they don't believe, at least as far as I understand, they don't believe that salvation happens at the moment of baptism, but perhaps they're, they're, they also aren't careful to make sure that the person being baptized is truly born again. And so they're not, they're not checking if this is really a, a genuine believer because they, they want to get them baptized before their marriage. And I don't really know exactly why it's at that time, but then for some unknown reason, they also believe that rebaptism, maybe if not the unpardonable sin, is at least a really bad practice. Now, being baptized as a believer is not a sin in any sense. No scripture supports that view. There is no scripture that teaches that being baptized as a believer is a sin. And any so-called baptism when one is not born again or united to Christ or when one does not know and believe the gospel, that is not a baptism at all. That's an empty religious ceremony. Again, baptism, biblical baptism is meant to picture a spiritual reality. So if there is no reality, then there was no baptism. And if a heretical group that does not know the true saving gospel is going to accuse us of blasphemy for doing exactly what Scripture commands, then I say, so be it. So be it. If you're going to accuse me of blasphemy when you don't even know the gospel, when you believe a false gospel that Scripture calls anathema, and you're going to accuse me of blasphemy, you're going to accuse us of blasphemy, well, beloved, it shouldn't surprise us if unbelievers are hostile to our views because they're hostile to God, right? They don't, they don't know God and so they don't know us. But baptism is meant to picture what God has already done in our life. And so if we were baptized before we were truly saved, we were never truly baptized and we should be truly baptized. We don't need to call it rebaptism. It's just 
baptism. And as we've seen in Scripture, it's really a simple command. Have a religious ceremony where you go under the water and come up out of the water, and it's a picture of your salvation. The church is to baptize, and the believer is to be baptized. Now, I want you to go over to Acts chapter 19 for a minute. I want to just show you something over here. Acts chapter 19. And what I want you to just kind of see here is that, that being baptized again is not a sin. We've, we've already seen that there are four physical baptisms. I, I guess we wouldn't count the one, but there was the proselyte baptism for Gentile converts, proselyte baptism. There was the baptism of John for repentance, and then there was Christian baptism. Three different baptisms in the New Testament period. And it's possible that that some of these people were baptized three times, once as a proselyte, a little bit later on in their life when John the Baptist came along, and then again with Christian baptism. Look at Acts 19, and verse, starting at verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Must have been something kind of a little bit off about these disciples. Do you, do you guys have the Holy Spirit? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? So it was clear that these people were baptized, but what were you baptized into? And he said, they said into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is, who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And so Paul here has a problem with their baptism. They were, they were baptized with insufficient knowledge. They were baptized, and they hadn't had the spiritual baptism. And so now Paul is going to baptize them and lay his hands on them like we see throughout Acts, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And so being baptized again in this way is, is no sin. It's something that, that, that's just done even, even in the New Testament. Now, as I was working on this message, I realized something as I, as I thought about this, and really I've been thinking about this for about two and a half years, praying about this. But I realized that, that most of you have probably not seen baptism done well. I would guess that you've seen baptisms where the testimonies weren't clear, and you couldn't tell, you couldn't see, the, the, the picture was marred of the spiritual transformation of the person. Their death and resurrection with Christ didn't shine through. And, and so I think baptism didn't, didn't really seem that great as it should be. It didn't seem as great as it is in the New Testament. You see, baptism is a wonderful, beautiful, most encouraging thing when it's done well. Baptism is one of the most encouraging things that you will ever see in a biblical church. Because you see the, the amazing work of God in transforming sinners by His grace. And you see that they were sinners and they were dead and they are transformed. And it's just such an encouragement to the church. 
And so we're going to do baptism. If we're going to do baptism, we're going to do it well at Grace Bible Fellowship. And I'm going to help you write God-glorifying testimonies of God's work in your life. I'm going to help make sure that your union with Christ shines through and people will be encouraged as you share what God has done in your life. And again, because you haven't seen it done well, or at least you've seen it maybe rarely done well, I think you don't hold as high of a regard as baptism, of baptism as it deserves. Again, this is one of only two pictures in the New Testament given to the church. It was ordained by the risen Christ to picture his life-changing work in your life, and it's a simple act of commitment and obedience to him. And it consists in immersion, picturing your death with Christ and your resurrection in him to newness of life. Now, I know at this point someone says, and you've just been waiting for me to get to this point, someone says, well, what about, what about me? You know, I was, I was baptized by pouring, but, but I was a believer. What, what about me? Well, many of you have told me, and, and I, I believe you very sincerely, I, I, you told me that, that you were doing your best to be obedient at that time, and you were doing the best that you knew to do at that time when you were baptized by pouring as a believer, and often immersion wasn't even an option for you. And, and I really think you were, you were doing the best that you knew. But after studying this last week, I, I, I would still say to you what I, what I think I said in the original interview when I came here, that you were eketod, but you were not baptizoed. And you gave a public testimony of your faith in Christ, but it, it wasn't the picture that the Lord commanded. Now you were, you were giving a picture and you were giving your testimony and you were sincere in that. And many of you have told me, and, and really most of you have told me, that, that you think that, that what happened that day was good enough. You were, you were sincere, and, and you, were, you were sincerely doing it. But I would say to you, I would propose to you, that you were sincere, sincerely doing it wrong. And you recognize that. I, I know that, that you recognize that. Many of you have told me that you recognize that, but you doubt whether you should bother to do it again. Again, you don't think it's necessary. And for two and a half years, I've asked myself and I've asked other pastors, what should be done at Grace Bible Fellowship in Lacreed? And, and I've asked this question. I said, is the Lord going to be mad? Is the Lord going to be displeased if these people were poured instead of immersed? Is it, is it that big of a deal to you, Lord? And I realized as I was preparing this message that, that we could ask it differently and maybe we should ask it differently. And, and here's the way I think we should ask it. Will the Lord be pleased if we take this opportunity to baptize according to his word? Will the Lord be pleased if we take the opportunity to baptize as we saw laid out in Scripture? And, and I think the answer is yes, I think so. And I just know for myself, I would rather stand before God and Christ as your pastor on that day when I stand before him and give an account and say, well, Lord, maybe it wasn't necessary, but we publicly declared your salvation by immersion because that's what you taught us in your word, Lord. And we, we were committed to your word and we wanted to be faithful to you and we wanted to do exactly what you commanded us. Versus saying to the Lord, well, Lord, we, we knew that, that you said immersion. We knew that you said baptism was by immersion, but we just, we, we didn't think it was that important. We didn't think it was necessary. It wasn't going to really help us. 
And I think that when you see what baptism truly is, when you experience these baptism testimonies, I think you're going to come to agree that this is a wonderful thing that God has instituted for his church. And I think it's going to be a great encouragement for all of us. And I think it's a great way to show, like we've said in these classes, that we have a high view of God. And that we're going to follow his word no matter what. We're going to correct what wasn't done. It wasn't done according to the word. We're going to just do it according to the word and we're just going to be obedient. Again, it's a simple act of obedience. And I think it's a great way to show that we are going to trust God to build his church and and leave the results to him. We're going to do what he tells us and leave it up to him. But really, ultimately now, you need to be convinced in your own hearts and minds. You need to be convinced that this is the right thing to do for you. Again, it's not a sin, and so I would say, why, why not do it according to Scripture? Why not testify to the Lord's saving grace in your life? And honestly, as I think about this, just like the Anabaptists before me, they, they, were, they were drowned, they died, they were convinced this is what Scripture teaches, and they said, well then, if you're going to have to kill me, you're going to have to kill me. But what I want you to do next is I want you to listen to Pastor John's message. I'm going to send it out maybe later this afternoon. I want you to listen to the baptism testimonies from Grace Life Church. I'm going to pick one that that kind of gives a mix of people and and shows their salvation. And just ask yourself if, if you couldn't take this simple step of obedience to be baptized according to his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Thank you for emotions that come when we don't really want them to come. Um, thank you for your word, your truth. And we just, just pray for my brothers and sisters. I know this is a hard thing for them. I just pray that you would convince them according to your word, that you would work in their life, even as you've worked in my life this week, Father. And uh, just pray that we would be the church that we said we were going to be, a, a church that has a high view of you, a sufficient view of scripture, that we understand the sinfulness of men, that we understand who the church is, that we have this accurate view of the church and of your truth and your word. So Father, just pray that you would help us with this and, uh, and, and be with us this week as we think about how to respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.